So uh, are you willing to look into a crystal ball and, and talk about what's going to happen in Virginia in the next month? No, I'm not close enough to do that. Uh, I don't predict juries, let alone legislators. Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macrow. Brought to you by Public Safety and Education and the Trigger Pressers Union. And now, your hosts. Hey everybody, welcome to Meet the Pressers with Clint Macro. Matt Mallory. Meet the Pressers is a safe place for all people that press triggers to talk about training, guns, gear, gadgets, politics, religion, political activism, and cool products like the Mantis. You bet. This episode is brought to you by Taser. Simple to use, safe to own, effective when you need it. Mantis. Mantis X helps shooters suck less. Meet the Presser is sponsored by Next Level Training, Saber Red, Cutting Edge Bullets, the USCCA, McLean Corporation, ASP, ESS, Common Sense Self-Defense, and T1 Ammunition. Meet the Pressers is also generously supported by these fine companies, ranges, and our Patreon members. Thank you. Today, our very special guest is Masad Ayub. Masad, everyone knows you as a legend in the instruction business, in the firearms instruction uh, business, and, and in the legal, legal world. Uh, but not many people know exactly how you got started in this business. Can you give us just a, a quick... I don't know, the, the, the Cliff Notes version of how you got involved and how you got to where you are today. Well, sure. Uh, I was the son of a gun owner. Uh, he started me off at the age of four with twenty two rifle, handguns at nine, uh, competition and informal competition in the early teens and formal competi competition in the late teens. Got into law enforcement in my early 20s. Uh, those kind of blended together. I was a firearms instructor for police pretty much from the beginning in 1972. I uh, started teaching private citizens in 1981. I uh, had started writing for gun magazines in 1971, and those kind of crossbred with each other. Found myself uh, when I became a firearms instructor in 72. Uh, really immersing myself in the best training I could find anywhere in the country. And I've kept that up for the decades since, and all of that kind of goes under the funnel that I filter and shared with the students. Over the years, has there been anything that you've changed your mind on as far as um, grip, stance, anything like that over the years that you've seen evolve? I'm sure there's tons, but just something that comes to mind quick that you, that you could say, you know, you used to do it this way and we do it this way now, these days. Well, when I started, there was a lot of emphasis on every shot should be a double tap. And we got away from that early. We were seeing a incident after incident where the officer would follow their training, come up, fire twice, lower the weapon, and realize the problem had not yet been solved. Uh, subtle, subtle things in training. Uh, when I got into it, the weaver stance was coming up. And I still teach the weaver stance as a, a component of training. 
but I was one of the early voices that said, wait a minute, the weaver's not the only stance, the, the situation's going to be fluid. Uh, a boxer doesn't, with only one punch isn't going to last very long in the, in the ring. Hmm. And a shooter who only knows to shoot from one position isn't going to last very long in the confrontation. I was an early proponent of the semi-automatic pistol for police service and was happy to see that, you know, finally come to pass. Uh, early on, uh, on the legal side of it, I followed the advice that I got from the judges and the lawyers I talked to. They said, never talk to the police, don't say anything until your lawyer gets there. And that was one thing uh, that experience taught me to change. I started doing the expert witness thing in 1979. And what I was seeing again and again, and I'm still seeing today, was people who followed that advice. And the problem was what, what I've come to call the false positive. Now, let, let's say uh, I was critically ill. I showed up at your emergency room, and you're in charge of the emergency room. And I'm manifesting every known symptom of disease A. Uh, it's a serious situation. You've got to take action quickly. Logic will tell you the symptoms indicate a diagnosis of disease A, therefore we'll treat for disease A. But if it turns out I have disease B, and the treatment for A is contraindicated for B, you may lose the patient. And where that applies here, let's go out of the emergency room and into the street. From the first responding officer onward, their collective training and experience has been that the actual victim in a situation is going to be the first one to say, that SOB did such and such, and I'll testify against them in court. And the guilty suspect is the one who's going to say, I ain't telling you nothing until my mouthpiece gets here. Their experience has been, by and large, if it wasn't an officer-involved shooting, Whoever's laying in the puddle of blood was the victim, and whoever had the smoking gun was the perpetrator. The actual perpetrator that you've defeated is laying here in the puddle of blood. He's doing a very convincing imitation of a victim. You are standing here with a smoking gun. His last words are, that guy shot me for nothing. And the officer says, buddy, what's your side of the story? And you tell him, I'm not telling you anything until my lawyer gets here. What are the symptoms that we've manifested? What's the diagnosis likely to be? What's the treatment likely to be? And by that point, the, the wheels of justice are rolling in a certain direction, and you've created a very uphill fight for your defense attorney. So early on, I came up with a protocol that's been widely accepted now. You be the one to call the police. There are only two roles open in the play. There's a part for the victim complainant, and there's a part for the perpetrator you make it clear you were the intended victim who fought back and prevailed. You make it clear the guy laying in the puddle of blood was the perpetrator. Tell them you'll be the one to call in. Whoever calls in first historically is listed as the victim complainant. Whoever does not becomes the suspect. Point out evidence. Point out witnesses. Evidence tends to, dis crime scenes are chaotic. Shooting scenes are chaotic. You've got dozens of officers and emergency medical personnel who are running around with, very typically, the emergency uniform has heavy treaded boots, which tend to pick up nine millimeter to 45 size brass and deposit it elsewhere, or literally walk it away from the scene. Uh, guns get moved. 
witnesses decide they don't want to get involved in the mm -hmm. The criminals never point out the evidence. That's the victims. The criminals never point out the witnesses. That's the good guys. And if you haven't pointed those things out, they'll disappear, and the evidence that would have proven you did the right thing becomes irretrievable. Finally, at that point, when there's further questions, is when you respectfully say, officers, you'll have my full cooperation after I've spoken with counsel. And at that point, invoke your right to counsel. So those are some of the things that collective experience and my personal experience have taught me to change in doctrine over the years. It's neat how you, say, how you said that. Um, it reminds me of something that I do in one of my classes where I'll say if uh, somebody's running at me with a knife and I just pull my gun out and point it at them and they drop the knife and then somebody walks around the corner and sees me pointing a gun at somebody with their hands up, mm -hmm. who's the bad guy? And everybody points at me. And I'm like, so verbalization's huge because that's going to hopefully stop the bad guy from doing something bad. Uh, it's going to oxygenate your blood so it helps keep you in, that, in the game so you don't go into that uh, visual acuity and such. And then obviously it creates witnesses. And, uh, and then if you say, oh, and hey, you, call 911, the person's going to be like, well, bad guys usually don't tell you to call 911. So even though he doesn't have a, a knife, he's got a gun at somebody who doesn't have anything in his hands, he sounds like he's a good guy. So that verbalization is, is key. You've been giving good advice. When we, when we train, we need to consider these things and how we would say them. You know, something Matt says quite often is the, the body can't go where the mind hasn't been. So, you know, if people aren't visualizing and mentalizing what they would say when police arrived or if they had to make that 911 call, they might be more likely to improvise during the moment and succumb to maybe the excitement and fear and, and chaos that's going on. So giving that kind of four-part statement, like you said, would you, would you say there's value in after that uh, evoking your right to remain silent? Correct. I, I teach it as a five-point checklist. Okay. Establish who is, who is the good guy and who is the bad guy. This man attacked me. This man attacked my wife. Whatever it was that led to the shooting. Indicate that you will sign the complaint. You will testify in court. This is what good guys do, not what bad guys do. Point out the evidence, point out the witnesses, and at that point, stop answering questions until counsel has gotten there. The, the history of it is the, the person involved is going to be you know, literally hypervigilant. Uh, it's real easy for the mouth to get ahead of the brain. <laughs> The people who are interrogating you are going to be asking the questions as they occur to you. They'll be taking notes, and today, more likely than ever, uh, their body cam will record the questions and answers. It's going to create the illusion later in court that this was the sequence of events, not the sequence of questions and answers. Hmm. And if um, such and such has been discussed, some, what happened second is discussed third, and what would happen third in the encounter is discussed first. It looks like you've changed your story, mm -hmm. and that tends to turn off uh, judges and juries. Mm -hmm. So things like fine point details. The, if you're asked how far away was he in feet and inches, we know that a significant majority of people involved in these things experience tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. And one of the effects of that is the opponent appears closer and larger than he normally would. Uh, you, you estimate based on that, uh, he was three feet away, but the security camera shows he was three yards away. 
you're yeah. judged by 12 people who've never been in mortal That's danger, sure. who've never had tunnel vision and explain to them. All they know is you've changed your story, <laughs> you lied to them once, right. if you've lied to them once, they can't believe anything else. Uh, they'll ask, how long did it take? The history of this is the, uh, the, the element called tachypsychia. Uh, the, the, if, the, if you or any of your viewers or listeners have ever been in a crisis and remember it happening in slow motion, mm -hmm. that's the name for it, tachypsychia. Mm -hmm. uh, you say it happened in 30 seconds and the dash cam recorder shows no, it happened in eight seconds. Once again, you look like a liar. So you need time afterwards to get your head together. The people at Force Science Institute who uh, go to the Force Science Institute website, uh, it's open to the public and it's a tremendous treasure trove of resources on peer-reviewed studies of things like action-reaction time, uh, effective sleep deprivation, and so forth. And you'll find they recommend at least one full sleep cycle before the involved individual is asked detailed questions at that time. Hi, I'm Bram Frank with CSSDSC.com. I make knives and trainers, and this is Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macro. Meet the Pressers. The shooting in Texas at the church. If you had to say there was one drill and stands out that you'd say this would be a good drill for what the gentleman in the, the church in Texas ended up uh, implementing. Sure. Well, if, if you think you might need to do what uh, Jack Wilson, the hero in that situation, did, that one critical precision shot through a very narrow lane of bystanders, I like, when I'm practicing for a match, I like to start and, and finish every practice session with what I call a focus drill. Okay. Uh, pick one tiny spot on the target, lock in on it, fire a shot, see where that hits. That bullet hole is your target for the next mm. 17 or whatever rounds. Uh, the goal is to get them all into one hole. And I find that really hardwires everything from brainstem to trigger finger as a reminder, here's what it feels like to make a perfect shot. So that when you have to do that on autopilot while the brain is occupied with assessing the threat, instead of reminding you what to be doing with your pistol, mm -hmm. you'll be able to make the shot. That aim shot. small, miss small, right? Exactly. Absolutely yeah. true. If you aim at the whole damn creature, you will probably miss the whole damn creature. <laughs> Very true. If you aim for its chest, you'll hit it somewhere. If you aim for its heart, you'll probably hit it in the chest. And if you can pick the chamber of its heart that you're aiming for, you're probably going to hit it in the heart. This is Eric and Chad here with I Write Veteran 8888, and you're on Meet the Pressers with Matthew Mallory and Clint Macro. Meet the Pressers. A lot of times I'll get questions in my classes where people want to know maybe the legal ramifications of making modifications to their carry gun. Well, sure. And the modifications, that's a widely misunderstood topic. Um, both of the guns I'm carrying today have had the actions honed. Uh, the Beretta is a Wilson combat version with improved sights. And uh, the trigger pull, of course, has been improved. Uh, what what you want to avoid is first anything and uh, anything Rambo esque, uh, a uh, a Punisher skull on the grip of your pistol or the back blade of your Glock. Uh, you know, a, a gun with a name like Devastator. 
I, I collect old Colts and Smith and Wessons. I have a soft spot for the old D Fran Colts. I own three Colt Cobras and I no longer carry any of them because I've seen two cases and been involved in one where they made a huge deal out of the gun was a Colt Cobra. Uh, that's what a stuff you, you've got to remember. You're not going to get a jury of 12 fellow gun enthusiasts. Right. You're going to get 12 people who are selected by the other side for their lack of knowledge on firearms. Right. And I, I do not give weapons to my enemies. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as the gun modifications, the only two I would worry about would be do not remove or deactivate the safety device on the firearm. Mm-hmm. Uh, taping down the grip safety of the 1911, for example, uh, removing the mag disconnector safety from a Browning high power. I've seen the other side use that as saying, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the charge is manslaughter. All I have to do is show you that this person is reckless and negligent with deadly weapons. Yeah. We'll prove to you he deactivates the safety devices on firearms. Mm. And you're going to have a hard time convincing that jury that you know more about guns than John Moses Browning, the Colt mm-hmm. factory, and uh, the entire military establishment of the United States and NATO. Uh, the other would be the so-called here trigger argument. And people don't realize where that comes from. Uh, the, the other side knows that self-defense is what's called a perfect defense. That is, once it's established, the judge's instructions to the jury are going to sound like, if you believe the defendant's story, you must find him not guilty. And it's, it's a very strong defense, and the other side knows it. Because the jury knows people like you and your listeners are not your typical murder defendants. You know, the, the street dirtbags, the gangbanger dirtbags. They know the jury is going to relate to you. And to try to convince them that somebody they identify with can turn into a monster is like trying to convince them that they could turn into a monster. That's mm-hmm. a tough sell. But if they change their theory of the case to the fact that, oh, we're not charging murder, Your Honor, there's no element of malice, we're charging manslaughter. He recklessly, negligently pointed that gun with a hair trigger that anyone should have known under stress could go off if you barely touched mm-hmm. it, and it did. Now, all they've got to do is convince 12 people that somebody just like them could be careless for one second and do something stupid. And that fits every single one of us, and that's an easy sell. Mm-hmm. On the uh, civil lawsuit side, they'll pull the same crap, uh, saying that you did it by accident. Because remember, there's no such thing as justifiable accident. Yeah. Right. Self-defense plea is has got to be an intentional act. If it was not intentional, it was not self-defense. Uh, In the civil side, what they're looking for is the deep pockets. Uh, Not a whole lot of us are both so rich and so stupid that if somebody won a million-dollar judgment against us tomorrow in court, we've got a liquid million dollars laying around to to satisfy the judgment for the other side to seize. Almost all of us would have a million-dollar homeowner liability policy or automobile liability. So you've shot the home invader or you've shot the carjacker. Well, if they argued that you did it deliberately, the, that forecloses them getting the money from the insurance company. The reason is, go, I, I invite your listeners and your viewers, uh, go home and read your automobile and homeowner liability policies. 
they will all exempt the company from having to pay for what's called a willful tort. Uh, the willful tort is your deliberate act that harmed another. Well, any act of self-defense is a legitimate intentional action. Mm -hmm. But if they want to get into the deep pockets, all they've got to say is, well, he recklessly, negligently used a gun with a hair trigger uh, that no police department would be allowed, would allow their officers to carry on the street. He's recklessly, negligently deactivated safety devices. Well, that recklessness, negligence is exactly what liability insurance of any kind is intended to cover. And now they're into the deep pockets of the insurance company. And you're, you're of course, going to say, no, it wasn't an accident. I shot him intentionally. The other side will defuse that in their opening argument. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury. This man's so arrogant, he'll probably come in here like Inspector Clouseau and say, I meant to do that. So the bottom line is, um, it, I would not alter a safety device except to make it more positive. Uh, I would not deactivate a safety device. As far as the hair triggers, there are basically two standards, uh, either of or both of which might come into play. One of them will be the, the manufacturer's uh, recommended minimum trigger pull weight mm -hmm. for a duty weapon. Duty weapon being the, the industry term for a self-defense gun, as opposed to, say, a recreational target pistol. Uh, the other would be common custom and practice. Uh, how do professionals who use those things every day adjust those particular instruments for their type of work? And basically, you'll find, for example, with a 1911 pistol, uh, historically, four pounds has been the, the red line minimum for a duty 45 as opposed to a target 45 for a 1911. In mm -hmm. uh, the striker fired guns, you go to the manufacturers, and of course, the leading manufacturer there is Glock. Mm -hmm. uh, Glock, since they brought out the 3.5, 4.5 connector uh, in the late 1980s, has said adamantly that it is only for target shooting mm -hmm. and it is not to be uh, to used on the street. Uh, if they, uh, the guns like the Tactical Practical series uh, that came out in the 1990s, the Glock 34 9mm, the Glock 3540, uh, the Glock 41, 45, et cetera, come from the factory with the three and a half, four and a half connector. But uh, if they ship them to police departments, their policy is to ship it with a standard five and a half pound nice. trigger. Yeah. And they will authorize the three and a half on a carry gun only if it's in conjunction with the NY1 uh, trigger module, which yeah, replaces the standard trigger spring and gives you a full, uh, full re firm resistance from the beginning of the pull. So the, what I tell my students is, I, I explain one of the one case example, uh, Santa Banas v. Tomball, Texas, uh, which wound up costing uh, $450,000 to the police department because the guy had, the involved officer had a three and a half pound connector in his Glock 21. I told him, look, it, it looks to you like it's $15 to uh, put a three and a half pound connector in your Glock. Might be 450K, depending how things go. And nobody's going to believe that you know more about the Glock pistol than 60-some percent of American law enforcement and Glock GmbH. So with the uh, ammunition, what would you recommend for uh, what type of ammunition people should carry? And should people be concerned? 
I mean, outside of being like, for instance, in a, a state where maybe they actually have a, a limitation of what kind of ammunition you can, you can have, is there any ammunition you would say people should steer away from for defensive ammunition because of the legal aspect of it? Well, I wouldn't use uh, ammunition with a name like Devastator or something like that. Uh, I recommend the, the premium jacketed hollow points from the four major manufacturers, uh, Spear, Federal, Winchester, and Remington, for probably three reasons. First, they have been the most deeply researched to get the job done, stopping violent felons with as few hits as possible. Second, they're the only ones we really have a track record on. Uh, NYPD, for example, with multiple shootings every year, has had the 124 grain Spear Plus P since 1999. Uh, if you look at the history of New York City Police Department, going back literally out of the late 19th century, the officers on the street were complaining that their guns and ammo didn't have enough power. And if you talk to the PBA, the Patrolman's Benevolent Association there, they will tell you the same thing. They fought for decades to get hollow point ammunition or mm -hmm. something more powerful than what they were issued in the old 38. They finally, uh, when they went to the nine millimeter in 1993, were issuing full metal jacket. And the union again complained, we're having to shoot people over and over and over. The bullets are going through and through and endangering other people. And finally in 1999, they went to the, that particular jacket hollow point load and the complaints stopped and you'll find no hand load no trick new design bullet that is going to have a track record like that uh, that particular load has had the exact same effect in uh, las vegas metro uh topeka and numerous other departments ice uses so you've got something that you know works it has a tremendous institutional history on the street okay finally the major manufacturers will generally keep for a period of about 10 years exemplar lots of every lot of ammunition they produce. And a whole lot of people miss the importance of that. Uh, a great many shootings are up close and personal when there's gonna be gunshot residue on the body or the clothing of the man who forced you to shoot. Now, if you get a dispute that, oh, he was, he was over here and no danger to you at all, and you're saying, BS, the guy was practically on top of me trying to take my gun. The gunshot residue is going to show who's telling the truth. But if it's disputed, the courts will fall back on a third, what's called independent third-party verification. The crime lab, uh, a private lab like HP White Laboratories that your defense lawyer might hire, will take samples of the exact same ammo, test it, and determine what was what gunshot residue pattern is consistent with what was on the deceased and at what distance was that. And that just cuts the Gordian knot and you've got hard scientific evidence that shows who's telling the truth. You saw that classically in the George Zimmerman case. Uh, you saw that classically in the uh, Darren Wilson uh, shooting of uh, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. If you do not have ammunition that you can replicate with the third party, which is normally done by going to the manufacturer, uh, you subpoena a sample, pay them for it, and it goes to the lab. If it was hand loads, for example, the court won't accept it. If it was old ammunition more than a decade old and we can't replicate it, the courts aren't going to accept it. If it came from a, 
a boutique ammo house where they've got a few guys running Dillon's and a Quonset hut. Uh, they don't have the room or the money to keep exemplar lots of them of every production run. So those are reasons we suggest you stay with the major manufacturers. And uh, by the way, I would add Hornady to the list okay. that okay. I uttered earlier. And uh, make sure the ammunition is not 10 years old, 20 years old, you know, or, or a mishmash of two rounds of Remington, two rounds of Federal. Uh, don't, don't make your defense team's job any harder than it already is. Hey, it's Riley Bowman, director of trainingconcealedcarry.com and host of the Concealed Carry podcast. And this is Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macro. Meet the Pressers. Out of all the courses you teach, what's the favorite one? What's your most favorite course that you teach to your students? Well, the, the most popular one is the, uh, the MAG-40 and the MAG-20. MAG-40 is, uh, we usually do it in four 10-hour days as an immersion course. Uh, 500 rounds on the range, uh, with all the different combat stances, draw, safe holstering, uh, shooting from positions of cover, weekend only, dominant hand only, speed reload, and all of that. And uh, the rest of it in the classroom on the legal side and the tactical side. MAG-20. Uh, we have MAG-20 range, which I've got a bunch of staff people around the country who teach that. That's the shooting portion. And uh, MAG-20 classroom is the legal side, the ethical side, the tactical side, and the psychological side. Uh, your, your listeners, if they're interested, can go to uh, masadayugroup.com. That's uh, M-A-S-S-A-D-A-Y-O-O-B group.com. We have programs around the country, and uh, basically most anybody uh, is going to be within a, a day's drive or so of one or another of our courses. Do you have any advice that you would give to someone that's just getting into basic level firearms instruction? Remember that the job is about them, not you. Uh, uh, Bob Lindsay, one of the, in a lifetime of dealing with a lot of great cops, I've met a handful of super cops, and Bob Lindsay is one of them. Uh, Bob's advice to instructors is, remember, you're not God's gift to your students. Your students are God's gift to you. Mm, that's awesome. That's great. Well, Mass, it's been a uh, phenomenal time having you on. I'm uh, learning some stuff myself. I'm hoping all of our, our listeners and viewers uh, go to your website and learn even more about you and sign up for some courses. And I, I look forward to, to seeing you at the shows and I'm sure Clint does as well. Yeah. Well, thanks tremendous. brothers. We'll be at the, uh, we'll be at the NRA show. Uh, I'm on staff uh, with Armed Citizens Legal Defense Network and uh, we generally stage out of their booth when we're there. Hope to see you there. Super. It's a tremendous honor having you on the show, sir. I thank you very much for your time. Definitely. Well, it's been a pleasure, guys. Thank you for what you were doing. Take care. Thank you. There's a lot of sponsors to make this show possible, like Mantis. Make sure you check them out and give them your business. This episode is brought to you by Taser. Simple to use, safe to own, effective when you need it. Mantis. Mantis X helps shooters suck less. Meet the Pressers is sponsored by Next Level Training, Saber Red, Cutting Edge Bullets, the USCCA, McLean Corporation, ASP, ESS, Common Sense Self-Defense, and T1 Ammunition. 
Meet the Pressers is also generously supported by these fine companies, ranges, and our Patreon members. Thank you. Thanks for watching the show. Make sure to like, comment, subscribe, share, click the little bell, come on Patreon, help support us that way, come to one of our classes, or host us, we can come to you and do one of our courses at your location. So until next time, adieu. Thank you for watching Meet the Pressers. 